Welcome to the Dive Table. I'm Jay Gardner, your co-host, and with me as always is Pun Master Nick Hogle. Nick, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty great, and I am pretty excited with today's show. Me too. I'm excited too. And uh, producer Daniel's here, which Damn means yeah, Damn it. we're recording another episode of the show. And today we're really excited, as Nick already mentioned and I did too, uh, to welcome Mike Galt to the table. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Any, any, any day I get to talk about diving is always a good, good day. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Uh, you guys ready to jump in? Oh, let's back roll right into this. Can I do a front roll? Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might yeah, end up in the boat. Try to get that joke in. I might point. end up in the boat, but that's okay. Oh my goodness! Yeah. A podcast for scuba divers everywhere. Take your seat at the dive table with your hosts Nick Hogle and Jay Gardner. All right, today, once again, we are really excited to be welcoming Mike Galt to the table. Mike is a veteran diver and has some incredible insights to share with us about his career in diving. He has been involved in multiple exploration projects, including the Flower Gardens Brine Seep Expedition. Did I say that correctly? Brine Seep Expedition. Uh, the Woodsville, Woodville Karst Plain Project and Jacob's Well. Mike is a founding member of the Good Enough Springs Exploration Project, which I'm very excited to dive into that, no pun intended, and has served as the project's membership coordinator and a lead exploration diver. Mike is an active recreational, technical, and public safety diving instructor, and Mike lives right here in beautiful Austin, Texas, where he is the owner of Central Texas Hyperbaric Solutions. We are really excited today to have you on the show, so... Um, yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. So Mike, maybe I can, maybe I can lead things off question wise. So how, I'm interested, how did you get started in diving? What, what brought you to your first breath underwater? Well, it all, it all started when I was just a few years old. Uh, my father who worked in the offshore industry, uh, he, he had a subscription to National Geographic. And when I was just a few years old, they had an issue that was devoted to diving, Jacques Cousteau, and the pages were just full of some awesome images of, of underwater life. I can still see them in my mind today. Um, and, you know, there was a one with a manta ray that really still sticks with me. And so, you know, by the time I was nine years old, I had my first subscription to Skin Diver Magazine, even though I wasn't old enough to, to dive yet. And once I Got old enough to get my first job. I spent every summer uh, working, trying to save up enough money to, to take a dive class. I could only work summers because I was, I played football and baseball in school, was a, an avid athlete. And so spent my summers working and I just never could quite save up enough in the summer to afford dive lessons. But when I, when I got into college, um, I got my first credit card. And Ooh, big mistake. Yeah, big. Yeah, yeah, big. Yeah. Hopefully that went well. Did that hopefully that went well. I remember when I moved into my college dorm, they had a nice uh introductory offer. We'll give you five hundred bucks and you only have to pay twenty bucks a month back. And that was my first credit card debt and my first default. So. Yeah. It's a rite of passage. I think so. And right, right around the time I, I got that, uh, I didn't have any specific plans for it. Honestly, I was scared to use it. Like I 
figured the I was an accounting major, so I was well aware. <laughs> oh, I was well aware of interest charges and what that can do to you. Uh, but I was driving down Anderson Lane here in in Austin, and there was a sign on the marquee. It said, "Learn to die for twenty four dollars and ninety nine cents." And I thought, wow, I can finally afford, even though that was a fair amount of money to me in college. Um, I was like, you know, I can probably, I can probably swing that and went in and they said, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll provide, we'll provide everything for you. Like you won't, you won't, you won't need to buy anything. It's just $24.99. We'll, we'll, we'll provide your equipment. Well, you do need to buy your mask, fence, snorkel and boots. And I was like, okay. So that's what went on the, that's what went on the credit card was mask, fence, snorkel and boots. And as listeners who are divers probably will not be surprised, that class ended up costing a whole lot more than $24 and, <laughs> and 99 cents. Uh, I, I was introduced to one of my first uh, dive industry things that I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't particularly fond of, and that was called hidden class. Oh, yeah. yeah real, because, real quick question, though. Were they split fins, your first fins? <laughs> no, no. Um, I'm, I'm going to get dated at some point in, in this process so i'll just go ahead and get it out there but those were not around when i looked at it out. those 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 were not there you jet, um, jet fins did, with holes or jet fins without we, holes. we did have <laughs> options other than jet fins we had come along further than that but um there were no split fins no no split fins. thank god i wish it yeah. stayed the same <laughs> but so yeah so i i just you know finally was able to do it and i i grew up on the highland lakes all my life my my bed growing up as a child was literally 50 feet from the shores of Lake LBJ. And so I was just thrilled to be able to go down in the lake and not be tethered to the surface, you know, by a breath hold. Uh, and so I just, I jumped in and got in the open water class. It was, it was February. It was cold. Uh, that was one of the reasons the class ended up costing more because a dry, a wet, excuse me, a wetsuit rental was not required like it was optional. You didn't have to rent the wetsuit. You know, the water was in the high fifties. Um, so they got me there. Um, but so, yeah, so that's how, that's how I got into my first, first open water class. And, and, um, again, you know, I was a broke college student and I would, I would spend some time going in the dive shop, just browsing around. I just love to be around it, even though I couldn't really buy much. I just, you know, they probably got tired of me walking around the store and not buying anything. And um, again, accounting major, I, I realized pretty quickly that they had a special going on and, and, and they were providing, they were offering, providing the equipment if, if you take the advanced open water class. And I did the math and it was cheaper to take the advanced class than it was to rent the equipment and, and go diving. And so that was my first venture into um, into continuing education and that's where the slippery slope started <laughs> what um what agency this was patty yeah yeah most of the shops in austin at the time were were patty i think there was a couple of nowy okay. shops at the time and uh that might have been about it in those in those days um this was like 19 1990 um there were there were many shops but um you know I didn't really know much about agencies. This was just the one that I was driving down the road and saw a twenty four ninety nine sign. That's about all I knew about it. Do you um, any any memorable moments from the class? Like right when you got in the water, did it just this was awesome, or what am I doing? I remember, the instructor. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I really lucked out with the the instructor. I ended up with an awesome instructor, David Booth, here in in Austin. Um, so that that really helped make it a positive experience for me. But my first 
like there is something that really stuck with me and it was in the pool, the first pool session, you know, the, in the course materials and the people that would talk to me talked about, you know, your first breaths underwater, your first breaths underwater, like, and, and I was really wondering what that was going to be like. I thought it would feel weird. And we, we went down, we went underwater and I, I, you know, I was expecting, you know, that first breath to be a uh, moment, you know, and, and like we went underwater and I was just so preoccupied and, you know, focused on the instructor and watching him and everything. And then there was this moment where I realized, oh, I've been breathing for a little while. Like it was so, it was so natural. And, and then it, then it started, the reality started hitting me. Oh, this is really cool. I'm like, I'm breathing underwater. Um, and, and that, yeah, I mean, in a swimming pool, like there's not much to it really. I mean, I've been in swimming pools all my life. You can't see anything on scuba in a swimming pool that you can't see from walking around (laughs) the side of the pool, but just the experience of that feeling of breathing underwater, like they did not oversell that when they, when they were talking about the, the core, that really was, it really was a special, a special moment. Yeah. And when we went to open water, you know, again, like the growing up on the lakes and going down, hold my breath and, and digging in the bottom and finding the shells, the mussel shells, and, and maybe seeing a fish dart by that, uh, you know, couldn't really stay and observe it very much. And I just remember, uh, you know, sitting there at the bottom of the lake and just kind of taking it all in simple, simple little things that I could now I had a chance to study and look at. And so all these years of wondering, you know, what is it really like down there was starting to unfold in front of me right there in the bottom of the lake. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really, really cool experience. Um, so this kind of, I guess will lead into the next question, um, about how you got into technical diving, but so was it like, I know for me, when I started taking classes, I was hooked, like, what's the next class? What's the next class? Was that the case for you? leading into technical diving or was it just kind of like, yeah, let's try this other class that you had? Like what, what, what was your path into technical diving? Well, honestly, it was, it was largely driven by one, just the interest in diving. Uh, but two, uh, I didn't have none of my friends dove. And so I didn't really have buddies to dive with. And so the continuing education was an opportunity to be connected with more divers, meet more divers. And, you know, honestly, as a starving student, you know, I kind of got, I got suckered in, if you will. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when I discovered, well, you can, you know, you can dive for free if you're a dive master, like you get to, we won't charge you, we won't charge you to go on the boat. We'll fill your tanks for free, you know, and you'll get discounts on your gear and everything. And so that's how, but you got to take the rescue class as a prerequisite, yeah, right? It's a vicious I like, cycle. I was like, that. okay, all right, I'll take the, um. I'll take the I'll take the rescue class and and I, I it's worth mentioning too you know I I asked I mentioned my instructor and he was a college professor in physics you know placed a really high value he taught at UT he placed a really high value on on education and you know I I got this idea that I was going to have a part time job maybe as a dive master working my way through college maybe I wouldn't have to work at the bank anymore. And he co-taught with his wife and I was discussing that idea with her. And, you know, thankfully she was honest with me. She's like, you know, in landlocked area like Austin, she's like, no, it's really not. Uh, a dive master is not really like a, a part-time paid job unless unless perhaps you're working in the shop with, along with that or something. Um, but it wasn't going to be 
really a quit your banking job to go do kind of thing. And, but the, the perks of it and the experience of being able to help out with classes really, really drove me that way. And so I pushed through dive master pretty, pretty quick. Um, so I could get out on the boat and be diving with the, the dive shop every weekend. And that's what I did. So a question I have, I just, is it the same as the, the doing shop or taking classes now? You're not necessarily with one instructor the whole time. Were you with one instructor from open water through dive master, which is possible. Definitely. It's definitely possible here, but like, I know me, it was my open water was one instructor. Advanced was another instructor. Rescue was another instructor. Is it, was that the same or did you have the same instructor going through the whole process? The, there was some continuity, uh, but I did have different instructors. So I took uh, open water uh, was, was the instructor I already mentioned. And then when I took advanced, he, he kind of tag teamed that with his wife. They co-taught it. So some of the dives I did with him, some of them I did with his wife. Um, Let's which keep was this really... PG-13, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, rescue diver, uh, rescue diver I took with a different instructor. And that was a one-off with that instructor, just took rescue. And, and then when, when I did Dive Master, that was with, uh, with David's wife, Carolyn. She did, I, I worked with David a little bit on Dive Master. You know, it's kind of an internship kind of thing happening over time. And so David uh, participated in that some, uh, but Carolyn was my certifying. She did the, the bulk of it and she was my certifying instructor for, for Dive Master. And so I feel like I had a good blend where there was, there's advantages to having that continuity with the instructor who you're familiar with each other. And, but then it's also nice to, to get some exposure to, you know, other, other teaching styles, teaching methods, and to get some exposure from other instructors too. So I feel like the way I did it, it wasn't planned, but I feel like the way it worked out went really well for me. Cool. Um, what was, what was your, so what, from dive master, then it went into technical or like, was it a patty course or how'd that all evolve? Well, I went, there was a instructor step in there before I got into, into technical. So, you know, I was, I was attending school in Austin, looking, looking for a, a, a school to finish up at, uh, and ended up the, the bank I was working at had an opening in Corpus Christi and I really liked the water and, Texas A&M Corpus Christi was looking like a really good school for me. And so I ended up on well, another factor in there is my, my father and I were getting reacquainted and he, like I said, he worked in the offshore industry and he was telling me that, that, uh, there, he knew folks in Corpus Christi, you know, the port of Corpus Christi where they were needing uh, dock inspections to be done. They needed commercial divers to do dock inspections. So I had this vision of moving to Corpus Christi, as a dive master, finish up college, uh, do some dock inspections while I was down there for, for extra money, uh, but soon learned that there was more to commercial diving than, than being a recreational dive master. Uh, we would go on to uh, form a commercial dive company, Poseidon Subsea Services. We were a Association of Diving Contractors, ADC, commercial dive company. So did that some while I was down there. But as far as the recreational scuba side of things, I got, I got down there and didn't really receive a warm welcome, I'd say, from the, from the dive shops down there. Wasn't feeling a lot of love. Uh, not that they didn't do anything wrong. I just, I was the outsider. And there were, there were two shops in town. Uh, one of them was a patty shop. 
And uh, one of them was an NASDS shop, uh, which has now since been merged with SSI. And so I went into the patty shop, being a patty dive master, you know, and, you know, patty really built me up. You're a dive master, you know. I'm the, you're the expert. You're the, you're, you're the pro, like, you know, and I was young, you know, and I, I, I believed it all. And I thought, you know, I thought, I thought I just, I'm going to walk in the dive shop and tell them I'm a dive master. And I figured they were going to roll out the red carpet and welcome me in. And, and, um, they just weren't real interested in me. <laughs> it's not you. It's us. <laughs> yeah. I, I do know the feeling. I, I, know, I kind of got that. You weren't trained here. You know, we kind of, we got, we already got our own dive masters and we don't know you and, and, you, and you look like a kid. Um, and so, I went. I went on down the road to uh, to the NAS, NASDS shop, and I had no dive master in town. Well, what agency are you with? You're probably with Patty, huh? Like most people. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, we're an NASDS shop. Um, we're you know we're we're serious divers. It's not that other stuff. You know, we're a little more hardcore or whatever. And and um, but the thing that got me was they said, well, you know, you're from Austin. Like, where you been diving? Oh, you're a lake diver. Yeah, you know, literally only dives I, I had done at this point were freshwater, freshwater dives. I didn't have ocean diving experience. And and uh, I might have had one dive, one day of diving, two dives at the Port Aransas jetties, maybe. I can't remember the sequencing, if that happened before or after this conversation. Uh, but I was a lake diver, you know. And they said, well, uh, we do, we use our dive masters on offshore rig dives. That's a little different game. Um, you would need to, if you're going to help out on those, you're going to need to get some experience. Uh, we'll probably need to cross you over to NASDS. And it was just a big ego sh shot. And I, you know, I walked out of there feeling like, what do those people know? I'm a, I'm a patty dive master. Did they not read the book? You know? And I really, I really thought, you know, that I like, they're, they're just overplaying this, like diving. You know, when I got into diving, I thought, remember, started with Jacques Cousteau, you know, back rolls out of out of ribs, zodiacs as you're steaming down across the water, you know, big adventurous stuff. And when I got into diving, I loved it. And I liked the peaceful, relaxing aspect of it, relaxing aspect of it. But let's be real, like recreational diving is pretty, pretty easy. Like yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't as like, it wasn't this adrenaline rush thing, like, and, and it was kind of tame compared to what I thought it was going to be. And so I kind of figured, you know, they're all, oh, they're making, they're just making a big deal out of this rig diving stuff. Like how hard can it be? Right. And of course I would eventually do my first rig dives, um, and saw the wisdom of rewards. You know, I, I was, I was young, I was inexperienced and she knew something I didn't know. And so despite, despite all the marketing and the buildup of what an expert I was at a dive master, I got a lesson in you know, different dive environments, like being, you know, being highly experienced in one environment, um, only gets you so far and it may not be very far for another environment. So, you know, I, it's the reality started sinking in pretty quick that, Hey, just because I've moved up these, uh, these, these rungs in the chart, yep. uh, doesn't like, there's still a whole lot more to learn about, learn about diving. That's one of the themes that we've, we've talked about before in some other shows is like, it's one of the things I love about it, about diving is as soon as you are on that high horse or, uh, you know, you're feeling good, it gives you a swift kick to the, you know, where, uh, of what you don't know. And then 
then it's a, do you recover or you don't, you know, like, I, I don't know it and I, I'm going to be comfortable with what I know and I don't want to go any farther or uh, I don't know it. You're right. And now I'm going to go find out how I can learn it. Right. And that's a, a right. really awesome part. I think of scuba in general, that's true of other recreational things as well, but at least scuba, that's been a theme that we've talked a lot about in development is that soon, if you're feeling good out there, listeners, uh, your, your, uh, your reckoning is coming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in scuba. Yeah. There was a, there was an interesting instructor that I met when I was down at Corpus named Martin Shamlian, Dr. Martin Shamlian. He, he wrote, uh, he wrote INTD's first, uh, I'm pretty sure it was the first, uh, nitrox manual. He was a microbiologist, PhD, which you wouldn't think when you met him. And a voodoo doctor? No. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he, called, he called water the great, the great equalizer. You know, I like it. it and, and that's, yeah, because it will. It will. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. Like, don't kid yourself. The water's, the water's got you. Um, but that, so I, I was a lost puppy in Corpus Christi, not feeling the love of the local dive shops. <laughs> and, 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 and also it's a little bit, you know, I had a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit in me and, you know, as a business student, I was looking at some of the things I saw in dive shops and naturally thinking of how things could be done better and, and how I would do it differently. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go become an instructor myself and start doing my own classes. So before technical diving, there was kind of that journey into becoming an instructor. So I was growing as a diver, as an instructor, and also getting a little bit of experience in the commercial uh, diving side of things, um, but was was still feeling a little unfulfilled on the adventure, the adventure side of things. And uh, through through one of the commercial divers, you know, this is this is all pre pre-internet and before the internet information was not nearly as readily available as it is today and you pretty much what you knew about diving you got from your diving friends and dive center and skin diver magazine you know and if it wasn't in there like you you didn't you didn't know about it and one of the commercial divers that was working for my father and I somehow had come across a, a journal called Aquacore and kind of also to set the scene a little bit is back in those days, the dive industry and Patty was leading the charge. They were the big gorilla in the industry, uh, but others were doing it as well. They were trying to overcome this false perception that, that diving was a dangerous sport. Like they wanted to try to help people understand if, if you, you, get, you take a class and you learn how to do it and you follow the safety protocols, it's, it's not this reckless thing. It's, you know, it's reasonably reasonably safe. It's not without risk, but Hey, you know, you can do it. It's not a daredevil thing. And so there's a lot of effort being put into this is safe. This is safe. This is safe. And you didn't, you didn't hear people talk about negative events. You didn't hear them talk about tragedies and diving. You didn't hear them talk about accidents and diving uh, because they were trying to overcome a false perception that existed on the danger side of it. Well, this commercial diver gave me this Aquacore magazine. I start looking through it. And there was a section in there called incidents. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is like some crazy underground magazine that I found here. They're talking about people dying. They're talking about people doing all this stuff that they told me in the dive shop you can't do or you're going you're gonna to kill yourself. It's really dangerous. 
you know, as I was about to make the transition to Corpus Christi, I found through some of my father's offshore industry, stumbled across a Nitrox book, found a Nitrox book and ordered it and read it. And I thought, wow, like, how come nobody knows about this stuff? This is freaking awesome, this Nitrox. And I, I marched down to the dive shop, went to the owner, one of the instructors. I'm like, look what I found, guys, we need to be doing this. And I nearly got run out of the store. Like I was labeled reckless, dangerous, that's dangerous stuff. You don't want to breathe that. You're going to kill yourself. Well, now I fast forward, I've got this Aquacore magazine and they're talking about Nitrox and Trimix. They're talking about all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, there's people actually out there doing this stuff. And they talk about, they talk about what can happen when you don't do it right. Like, like, okay, this is, this is accident analysis. This is risk management. They're being real. Uh, about the dangers of this. And you can see they use these reports to help make their diving safer. And so this started sounding more adventurous to me. Around the same time, I had discovered the National Speleological Society's Cave Diving Section's book on cavern diving. And I'd read that. And I really... It, that sounded like far out there to me at the time. Like this, not many people, cave diving is much more popular these days. Back then, there were not many cave divers around and they didn't talk about it. Certainly not in Texas. And, and so to read this book, though, I was like, I don't think I would ever be able to go inside a cave. That sounds pretty extreme to me. But this was the first time I saw the T word in diving. Like I always talked about buddy this, buddy that, always dive with your buddy, but I'd never seen them refer to a dive team and the different people in the dive team. And they talked about two person teams, three person teams. And when you've got three, each one, you know, has a, has a responsibility of what they're doing through the dive. And that really resonated with me because what I, what I didn't mention uh, when I talked about getting into my first open water class was, you know, I was a, I was a competitive athlete in high school and, and it, and really, you know, I had a broken home childhood situation. Mother passed away when I was young and my escape, the thing that got me through it was sports. And, you know, no matter how bad things got in home, in the real world, whatever, I could go, I could go to football practice. I could go to baseball practice. I could go to a game and I could escape that. And that was my family. My family was my teammates on the football team, on the baseball team. That was my, that was my family. And I had a hard time in college. I was supposed to play baseball that fell through. There was a coaching change. And so I was kind of lost there for a little while. And I was missing, I was missing my team, you know, and diving was my replacement hobby and things got really good for me when I got into diving. Um, but I never really, so that was my replacement for sports. Uh, but I was kind of doing it alone. And so this, this idea of, of being on a dive team, like really, really resonated with me. And so I started looking into this technical diving stuff and that's kind of how I, that's what like first caught my interest in, interest in it and, and attention to it. Well, your journey there, uh, certainly we, we know a bit about, and I'm excited to jump into. So, uh, but but just to stop for a second there and and say to acknowledge that uh, that concept of team, um, I mean I think that's a that's another one of those things that is understated. Uh, I know for me uh, and Nick and I have talked about this that 
that um, that was the surprise for me, at least in scuba, was how important my team was um, and how important it's become to me uh, in terms of building a team. And we've done some episodes about that. That's awesome to hear. And, and I'm, I'm listening to this, just going, nodding along, going, Yep. Yeah. I felt the same way. Yeah. I feel the same way. I felt the same way. And here's why we, here's where we uh, diverge completely um, because I don't have your experience here. So uh, for those of you that don't know, um, this is a pretty incredible uh, fact about Mike, but Mike, you were uh, a member uh, of the famed YKPP team. And for those of you out there listening to this that don't know about this team or haven't heard this before, um, this is the Woodville Karst Plane Project. Um, where much of what we now know as DIR diving or doing it right diving was born. And it was born out of necessity. It wasn't born out of like, we want to be cool and create something. It was born out of necessity as as all those divers, those YKPP, WKPP, um, sorry, sorry. Y, yeah, WKPP <laughs> divers hold uh, every deep distance record in underwater cave diving. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's still true. At least it was true at some point. Um, so... I'm curious, how did you become involved with WKPP? Um, what was your experience diving on the team? I mean, I, I'm so excited to hear about this. Okay. So that that started with um, uh, when I, I first started getting into technical diving. I didn't know anybody else who who did it and was trying to learn on my own. I wasn't, I wasn't going out and actually executing dives on my own, but I was doing my own research. And it, it became clear that the, the first step in that would be to, to get this nitrox stuff. And I'd, I'd read enough and was convinced enough that despite the reaction I got from the dive shop, I was like, this nitrox stuff seems okay to me. I started calling around. Uh, there was a list of instructors. I had found this organization, IANTD, IANTD, International Association of Nitrox and Technical Divers. And they had an instructor list and there wasn't many names on it. In, in those days, uh, there's a, there was a couple that I recall in Texas. Uh, one was Jim Bowden, who uh, I reached out to him and, uh, he, he said he would be happy to take me as a, as a student, but he said, realistically, I'm really focused on this thing called Zakaton. I was like, Oh yeah, I read about that in Aquacore. That was one, <laughs> that was one of those crazy things in Aquacore. So Jim Bowden, um, you know, his, his exploits are, are legendary, uh, record holder diver. He's also in the Austin area. Uh, but he he had this project in Mexico called Zacaton, which could be the whole subject of another another episode. But he was upfront and honest with me. He's like, "Hey, um, you know, I'm probably gonna be pretty busy with that. Don't know when I can get to you." And and it was clear, you know, uh, one of the other instructors on the list was Ann Kristovich, Doctor Ann Kristovich, who also whose whose uh, oral surgery practice was just right around the corner from my house here. Uh, she helps out on that project too. So you go ahead. So I'm like, okay, so if I want to get this done anytime soon, strike those two off the list. Uh, there was another name on the list, Jess Armantrout. And he was in listed in Victoria, Texas. I'm in Corpus Christi. I'm like, that's actually closer to me than Austin. So I, I call, left a voice message uh, for this guy, Jess Armantrout. And I got a call and it, Back up a little bit. I, this has been kind of a journey trying to find an instructor in Nitrox. It wasn't easy to do then. And so it's like, I'm kind of, oh, where am I going to find an instructor? Can I real quick touch on that? Because I don't know if we went into that, that Nitrox was at one point not accepted 
Did we go into that at all? Or I We think, haven't in the past, but yeah, the voodoo gas. Yeah, like I yeah. know we were kind of joking around joking about around. it, but do you want to just kind of touch on that real quick so people can un- – like it, it was not accepted. It was very – um. so if – if because now it's so – it's it's different because it's so widely accepted. It's, almost it's too much. It is. It is. Yeah, it's widely accepted, but there was a time – um. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. A time before the internet, I can't. I can't wrap my head around it. Sorry, totally kidding. Sorry. Um, you you I grew know. up before the internet. I know, um, I know. I know. I'm totally. I just, you know, me. I like my jokes. But no, if if you could just kind of, so our our listeners know that there was a point in time where nitrox was you're gonna die if you use it. Kind of like so. That's yeah. what you're speaking about. Yeah. So that that reaction I got in the dive shop that day when they, you know, kind of gave me the treatment. Like I can't believe one of our dive masters is actually you know, you know, trying to do this, um, that was representative of what was happening across throughout the world. Um, that, 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 that represented the sentiment of the dive industry. And it's, it's, to me, it's actually a kind of interesting story. Uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a organization in diving called DEMA, the Diving Equipment Marketing Association, if I have the acronym right. And so that's basically the trade industry or trade organization for, the scuba industry, and they they have an annual annual conference, annual trade show for industry professionals, and this this anti nitrox sentiment was so strong that they deem a banned nitrox from the trade show. They they um, they said you know we don't want you guys in here can't can't talk about this here we can't have displays on this no nitrox in recreational scuba diving that stuff is dangerous. I mentioned Skin Diver Magazine and, and that that's where everybody got their information back in the day was if you happen to know somebody that you could get it from a person or through this magazine. Well, the Cayman, the Cayman Water Sports Association uh, was the second largest advertiser in Skin Diver Magazine back, in, back then, Patty being the, the largest. And for some reason, I have my suspicions of what the reasons were. Uh, for for some reason, the Cayman Water Sports Association band together and decided no nitrox on the Cayman Islands. Can't do it. You can't be a member of our trade association. And went as far as like, if you've been diving nitrox, we're not going to treat you in the chamber. You get bent, not going to treat you in the chamber, no nitrox. And when I try to make sense of that, and I've heard other people say this was the reason, the best way I could think to, to even justify that lunacy is... They didn't want they didn't want the longer bottom times on their boats. They wanted to turn divers around, get back in, load it up with another round of paying customers, and go back out again, which is really bad business because you know, you, you, businesses survive by giving customers what they want. Not to mention, like if you if you look at the time it takes to load up the boat, get everybody going, and everything, a few extra minutes of bottom time is not running up your overhead, but it, it does have an impact. To that diver's experience in a positive way, and but they their thinking just wasn't there yet, um, and so they went to Skin Diver magazine and said, "We want this nitrox stuff squashed." Skin Diver devoted an entire issue to bashing nitrox. You know, they this is a true story, and you know, the there's different there's different uh, sections in the magazine. Like, like for one that comes to mind was there was a column every month about diving medicine and the diving medical expert, he would have something. And usually these, 
things like the main story and some of these sidebar stuff weren't always necessarily connected. But in this case, it was everything's about nitrox. Everything's about how dangerous it is and how it's going to kill you. And they ran that. And so that certainly didn't help, you know, the image of nitrox at all. Well, what came from that is these guys, the, the kind of guys that you would read about in Aquacore magazine said, okay, we can't, we can't get in DEMA. We'll start our own, <laughs> we'll start our own conference. And they called it the tech conference. And you could go to this tech conference and, and, and you could learn about, learn about technical diving and nitrox. And so, so nitrox was considered technical diving in those days. It was tech diving. And this was really exciting. So one of the really cool things about diving is how young the sport is. Like golf has been around for centuries. Basketball's like 1800s or something. You know, the scuba technology came about in my father's lifetime. You know, Patty and Nowie are barely older than I am. You know, this is a brand new sport. And technical diving is even younger. Like this is starting up really. It wasn't mainstream until after I was already certified. And so it was really interesting to see this unfold because you've got these guys up there on, on these panels and they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we do this? A big thing is avoiding regulation because the government, and you can see it in the commercial diving regs, terrible. Like it is, I, I, can, it, I can do a safer commercial dive or a, a safer dive illegally by OSHA regs than I could by complying with OSHA regs. They actually make it more dangerous with rules like you can't use uh, trimix unless you have an on-site chamber, which would be an onerous requirement, but they're okay with you doing it on air, mm. <laughs> you know? And so, so we, you know, the recreational industry did not want to be regulated. And I think that was some of the fear with the technical diving is they thought that might invite regulation. And so now these guys are up there at the tech conference and it's like, okay, how can we do this? How can we do this without the government outlawing it outright or, or stepping in and telling us how to do it the wrong way? And that was really fun to watch and unfold at these at these tech conferences in the early days. Yeah, cool. No, I appreciate that because it's such a wild concept. When I first heard about that, because it's it's almost like mentioned even in your open water class these days. Like, hey, take nitrox. Like, this is you know advanced nitrox. Like, it's so accepted. So to think about a time when it was not is just kind of a, a crazy thing. So I appreciate you going yeah. into that. Yeah, and so I. I uh, I left a message on Jess Armitrout's, you know, answering, answering machine. And surprisingly, like it wasn't long at all. And I, another new technology that had just come out was caller ID uh, on my landline. Y'all, you know what a landline is, Nick? <laughs> yes, I <do>. Okay. <laughs> I joke around, I joke around, but yes. I remember oh, used to, I remember waiting on those phone calls in middle school. Get off the phone, get off the phone. You don't have call waiting, you know. So by now I had opened a dive shop, but that was a whole, whole nother story. Uh, ended up, ended up, uh, couldn't survive as an independent instructor very well. So I, I pretty much got bullied by the industry to open up my own dive shop and did. And I'm in the dive shop and I see the caller ID comes up and, and, uh, I thought it was going to be for my dad because the, the, uh, engineering firm on it was an offshore you know, refinery related, related engineering firm that my dad, uh, did business with. So I thought it was going to be someone trying to reach him. And I could still hear the voice just like it was yesterday. I answered the phone, you know, however I answered it back then. Thank you for calling Poseidon Divers, Mike speaking or something. I don't know, but I hear, so you want to get into nitrox? <laughs> and I, I was like, who, like, how did that, how did that get, 
word get back to my dad's associates and why are they harassing me about this? Like, and I'm all paranoid, you know, because I'm waiting, I'm waiting for lights and I trucks, you know, I'm waiting for the Patty police to show up at my door or something. It's like that'd be a great and, start to a movie. So you want to get into nitrox. And I, I said, well, yeah, 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 I do. And it, and it was Jesse who happened to be working in Corpus Christi on a, on a contract assignment. And so I'm like wondering how far down the road this has to get planned out and everything. He's like, well, what are you doing this afternoon? I get off at five. <laughs> and so he's over, he's over at the dive shop. He's talking to me about nitrox. And this was a watershed moment for me and, and my diving development, not just because that, that was the beginning of my transition to technical diving, but that was my first time, uh, uh, with someone who he was a paddy instructor, but he was also Naui and some tech agencies. And he was the first person that in diving that spoke to me outside of the, I don't know what to call it, the industry bubble or something, the, the, the party line. And he, I learned so much from him about recreational diving, technical diving, my career, he doesn't even know that. Hopefully he'll listen to this and hear, hear about that. But, you know, he, he liked to ask me why a lot. Why are you doing that? And he was the one that taught me not everything they told you in your paddy course is really how it is. I mean, I'm not, let me, let me back up. Um, I'm not saying that they're, they're disseminating inaccurate information. He, he, the point was that there's other perspectives and there's more, there's more to the story than that. Um, and so there, and there's more to the story than the, the garden variety, you know, uh, dive shop operation. This wasn't, this wasn't about one agency better than another. This was about Mike had only been exposed to one way at this point. And, and so he, he really helped me start to understand why. And, and that, that was a mindset shift that needed to change in me before I headed down this, this technical diving path. Um, because there, you know, I, I had seen and was shown a lot of things along the way where I should have had a better understanding of why, you know, I, I was, um, at my dive shop, I was a dive right dealer. So how did I choose my first, uh, technical diving equipment? Like I'm thumbing through the catalog. And I figured, well, you know, that this is what the, this is what the technical divers do. And I just start buying the stuff, you know, and then I get into the training and find out, well, you know, maybe some of that stuff was really meant to be used a different way than how I saw applying it. And maybe some of that stuff is not really the best gear. There's maybe some other stuff. And by the way, maybe some of the stuff is not even commercially produced yet. And you need to be making your own or making a friend with somebody who makes their own, which was something we did a lot of in the, in the, in the early days. And so that, you know, that's where it started. And it started with a, it started with a, a nitrox class and just took me up through the, through the ranks, uh, becoming a technical diver and becoming a technical diving instructor. And he, he did a lot of, spent a lot of time cave diving, which was something I never really thought I would do. And you know, one day he, he was in the process of moving east and, and, uh, he was trying to wrap up some of my, some of my training and he came back with some new ideas. It was a weird looking stage bottle that he came back with one time. 
Um, I hadn't seen anything like it before. It looked bizarre. I didn't understand why it had these ropes on it. And you can go out to Windy Point this weekend and see 20 of them. Um, but it looked really different, really different to me. Uh, and he starts asking me why I'm doing some of the stuff I am in my kit. And I don't have answers for it. And he starts changing it up. And I was going through this, this class with my old open water instructor who was also getting into technical diving. He also happened to be a cave diver, but he was, he was working on his uh, you know, nitrox decompression procedures instructor with Jess and me. And he and Jess were connecting on something related to cave diving that was a mystery to me. And they kept talking about this WKPP thing. And David was asking about something and Jess is saying, well, you know, if you're going to dive with the, the, if you want to dive in McCullough, like this is how you got to, this is how you got to do it. And this is why we do it that way there. This is why it's, this is why it's better. And I didn't really understand what those guys were talking about. I didn't know what this WKPP thing was, um, wasn't on the internet yet. And, and um, anyway, so when that class was wrapping up, I, I, well, but before I go to that, I wanted to mention that a big learning thing for the, me that happened that day uh, was related to uh, minimalism. Uh, if you don't need it, don't, don't take it with you. So things like streamlining, I had two, I hesitate to admit this, <laughs> but I will. So I had, I had two SPGs on my doubles, you know, why? But well, in my mind, I had two, I had two valves, I had two regulators, two SPGs, right? Don't know what you don't know. Like, well, why, you know, but, but they're connected to the manifold. And I was like, well, yeah, but I'm smart. You might, you might, that manifold has an isolation valve in it. You might have to shut it down. And then what, you know? And he's like, well, then what? I was like, well, then I can still tell how much is in, you know, both sides of my tanks if I isolate them for, for any reason. And he's like, well, you know, if you isolate the dives over, right? And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, why do you need to know at that point? Why do you need to monitor both sides? Why, why do you need to know? Because you're, you're going to go to the surface at that point anyway. Uh, if anything, having that gauge is all it's going to do is preoccupy you. You need to be focused on other things and not looking at it. And if anything, it's just going to, you're going to be watching the needle drop and then increase your anxiety level, which is going to increase your breathing rate. And so you're going to get, you're going to be really happy looking at this unnecessary gauge <laughs> that you have now as the needle's going down faster. Now you're making, I'm sure, gosh, maybe we'll have to, I'll likely do a part two so we can talk philosophy, but you're, you're highlighting a really important thing here that I don't want to miss, which is there is a human factor as Gareth Locke has, has kind of come out with, but, but that's an old idea uh, of a human being to the gear. It's not just the function of the gear. There's a cost to each piece of gear that you bring with you in terms of that spotlight that your brain has. And, and I think um, minimalism isn't just for the, for the sake of being minimalistic. It's for the sake of the task loading that can happen um, just passively having two SPGs. I mean, you're, you're making a really, really, really good point that I think a lot of divers don't realize that that when you take on a piece of gear that um, that you don't have a good reason why it's there um, or a need for it, that it actually loads to what you're now conscious of and what you're, what you're taking on the dive mentally from a human factors perspective. So I think it's a really good point to, it's funny, but it's also a really, really good point to drive home that I think a lot of people don't realize. 
Yeah, yeah. A wise diary. I don't know where it originated from. I picked it up from somebody and it sticks with me. It's very, very important. Um, you know, the, the, the question is, what's the most important piece of equipment that, it, that any diver has? And it's your brain. Um, there is there is a human there is a human connection. If you look at if you look at accident analysis, you know invariably, uh, almost always, you know there were bad decisions made along the along the along the way, and and so that's that is the human factors are extremely I- important. And you know if you got two pressure gauges, you you just you doubled the chances that you're going to have a pressure gauge failure on your on your dive. That's still a low probability. I mean, even with two of them, you're not real likely that, you know, that's going to be a problem, but this is the mindset thing is, but what do you get for, even though that doubling still doesn't make it a high probability, what do you get for it? You know, and, and in this case you get additional task loading, additional drag. These are small things, but you don't really gain anything. You don't really gain anything from it. So leave it at home. Like you don't, you don't need it. And, and so that was a big, big thing that I, I learned there and just closed out this day and he was heading back East. Um, you know, my development wasn't, wasn't complete yet, but it was getting it kind of a milestone. And he handed me when we were parting ways, uh, he hands me a V Nick, do you know what a VHS cassette <laughs> is? I, uh, I'm trying to think, I, I think I had, uh, I think I had a couple of VH as tapes back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So watch he, Barney. Don't let yeah. him. Don't uh, let him. <laughs> huge Barney fan. Uh, for some reason, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comes to mind. I have no oh, yeah. idea why, but I've been a fan <laughs> of Turtles for a long time. Well, he he hands me a, a VHS cassette, and it it's a really plain looking cassette. Um, it just has a black and white label on it that says "Doing It Right," and, and he hands it to me. He's like, you know, if you really want to know how to do it. He's like, go watch, go watch this. Okay. So I, I went home and I plugged that thing in and it's a, it's a very amateurishly made uh, VHS cassette, very, very cr- crudely made, very low quality, had a strange looking guy on there in his shorts with the show his gear, but absolutely rich with information about gear configuration. And people today would call this the, you know, Hogarthian gear configuration. But what it, what it was, was it was a cassette tape that the WKPP's project director had, had made, a VHS cassette that he had made to, to use as a learning tool for the WKPP divers. So this is how we dive in the WKPP. And it, go, it just steps you, through, uh, steps you through this. And I was just astonished because... I was a, I was an equipment junkie. One of the, somebody asked me like way back in my diving, like, what do you like about it? I'm like the equipment. I love the equipment. I've got, I have some embarrassing Christmas tree photos of myself <laughs> that y'all, that y'all will never, that y'all will never see. Uh, We're going to find just them. gear, just gear. Just, and I, this was as a recreational diver, just with gear hanging off of me, you know, Seven SMBs. And, <laughs> and then I, I saw that, I saw that, you know, I, I see these images in the magazines of the technical divers and they've got all the tanks and they had all this gear and man, that just looked really cool to me. And, you know, I wanted to do that. And then here's this guy who's actually doing real stuff, like big, big stuff. And I'm, I'm like, where's his gear? Where's all the gear? <laughs> Like, this is so simple, so streamlined, and so easy, and he talks through it, and every single piece was a certain way for a specific reason, 
and it was holistic. It all went together. You change one piece of it and the other stuff doesn't work as well or maybe doesn't work at all. And, and I went through that you know, and I watched it, watched it, uh, tried to, tried to focus on the, the equipment, not George too much, but so it really opened my eyes. And, and that's what that stage bottle was that I alluded to earlier. It was a Hogarthian rigged stage bottle. I, I had been going, admittedly, I was going around with metal to metal connections on my stage bottles prior to this. Cause I didn't, I didn't really know. I didn't know about the incidents, um, where, where people had gotten hung up on stuff and, and couldn't get, couldn't get free as readily. And I never really thought about, you know, well, what happens if these snaps seize up and I can't get one open and I've got this thing hose clamped on there and it's all metal. How do I get out of this? And so, you know, I took from that and, and learned from that. And that I eventually kind of figured out that, okay, this is connected to that WKPP thing. It's a cave diving thing. And, you know, I asked, I asked Jess at one point, you know, this is before it was, the team was really a household name. Not many people knew about it. Hadn't blown up on the internet yet. And, uh, you know, I call him up one day and I was like, Hey, what do I, what I need to do? I'm not interested in cave diving, but I've, I've managed to figure out that the entrance to this cave y'all are diving is, I don't know, something like 180 feet deep, well over a hundred feet deep. Like it's a deep dive just to get inside this cave. So, Maybe you guys need help from open water decompression divers like me. What do I need to do to get involved on, on the team? And at, this was not long after they were kind of reforming the WKPP and building up membership. And so, you know, the requirements to get on the team were different then uh, than what they, what they were a couple of years later and what they are now. But, you know, he tells me, well, you, you need an open mind, a willingness to learn, a willingness to help out. That's the requirements to, to join the team. Uh, but if you're going to get in the water at all, you got to be full cave certified. No, no open water divers in the water here, even, even in the open water zone. And so I'm like, well, I guess that counts me out. Um, cause I'm not, I just didn't really see myself being able to get into cave diving yet. Um, but I eventually would you know, get into, get into cave diving and, you know, started out, uh, just, just doing my own, doing my own cave diving. You know, I, I went to, um, I'd figured out by now the internet had come out. And so I was doing Thank my you, research. Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> Who was it? No, no, no. It was Al Gore. I think it's Al Gore. <laughs> you know, there, there had been a, so the agent by now I'm an instructor with uh, TDI, you know, and at one point along the way, Jess being a, um, a TDI IT, he had, he had uh, helped facilitate at one point along the way, uh, TDI was, uh, they were doing TDI courses within the WKPP. WKPP, they, they, uh, they had some really awesome folks on the team, really smart people, really experienced people, knew their stuff. They were doing, they were doing deep dives. They were doing long dives. They were learning things about helium and trimix that others were not, were not learning. And they, they were the real, they were the real pros. And so, you know, even I've heard Jess say he learned when he, you know, when he went there, yeah, even as an experienced Trimex diver, he's learning stuff on the team. That was one of the big uh, pluses of being on that team is you could really learn these things from these guys that really know their really know their stuff. Uh, but they wanted to be able to issue credentials, C cards to folks, and so for a while they were they were kind of incorporating this with TDI courses. But then there's that internet thing, and um, 
there's actually, and this, this could maybe be an episode, but there was a, there was a high profile, uh, fatality, uh, with a, a TDI principal and, and he was, he was diving what would be considered today, you know, back up deep air, deep air diving was much more accepted at one point in time than it is, than it is today. And this would be considered a deep air dive. And there, there was a fatality. He was a TDI principal. And so the, the director of the WKPP, uh, who was known for, for doing this very vocal online and, you know, had, had some things to say immediately about this fatality and a lesson in deep air. And, you know, he wasn't wrong about his assessment of deep air versus, versus Trimix, but this whole internet thing was brand new. There were people, there were people literally scrambling to try to find, find flights so that they could get to this guy's wife and let her know in person that he had, that he had passed. Um, what happened before that was he was, he was flamed on the internet for his choices and, and his diving and it blew up. And, and so that was the parting of the ways, um, the, that project director that did that, uh, was, um, kicked out of TDI. His instructor card was revoked, uh, for some of that online behavior, um, around this, around this fatality. And, and so wasn't too long after that, uh, that, a, a new agency was formed. Uh, we now know it as, as GUE. That that grew out of the WKPP, and they were they were taking and commercializing the methods that have been developed over time by the WKPP, and they were making that available through their training programs. And so, when when I decided to become a, a cave diver, you know, I went on their webpage, and it was a very short list of dive instructors, all really great people. And my old open water tech instructor's name was on that list. So I, I call him up, ready to do cave diving. I see, I see you're a GUE instructor. This seems to be the way to go. I'm seeing a connection between that and that team that I've been hearing about from you. And I don't know if I'll ever be on that team, but you know, maybe someday down the road, after I've gained some experience as a cave diver, maybe I will. Can you teach me cave diving? And he says, well, actually, my name on that list? Yeah. yeah. I was like, well, I'm not really actively teaching. Um, and, and, um, he's like, but you know, but Pat Watson is a really good instructor and he knew Pat had trained some of the guys that, that were close to me, um, in Texas. And I, his name was on the list too. I was like, okay, cool. So I contact Pat said, Hey, um, saw your name on, on, on here and, and, um, interested in taking cave diving. And he says, well, I'm not teaching with that agency. Um, I don't know why I'm not listed on there, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I teach, I teach with an NSS CDS. And I said, well, I, I was referred to you as an individual, as an instructor for your capabilities as an instructor. I don't care what card you're issuing. I want to take the class from you. And, and so I ended up, ended up uh, getting some quality training from Pat. Awesome guy, awesome instructor. And, and awesome for me too. Because sometimes it's not just about whether the person is a good instructor. It's, it's how you, as a student, what you respond to well. And, and Pat, was, Pat was really good for me. He was really good for, for a lot of people. Uh, and, man, I was hooked. I loved cave diving. I was, I was a technical diving instructor, tons of dives logged, 
And man, I'm learning new stuff. I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning new things. And this was, man, it was like being a new diver all over again. And I was loving it. And the things I got to see in the caves in Florida was just awesome. A really spectacular experience. Thoroughly loved it. Um, and that, you know, once I got that, you know, that would eventually lead me into the WKPP. And the, 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 the team, by the time I got into cave diving, that team was growing leaps and bounds, lots of divers, and they were accomplishing great things, setting world records. Uh, you know, they're, they're just 300 feet deep, over 10,000 feet back in the cave, teams and teams of divers. And I just really wanted to be a part of something like that. I wanted to experience it. I didn't have any ambition to, to go 10,000 feet back in Wakulla. They wouldn't let me. I wasn't qualified for that. And that wasn't really a goal of mine. But I saw something special happening there. And, you know, I'm still missing this team stuff from my sports days. I was like, I want to I wanna see, I want to experience that. Like, I want to know what that's like. I want to be there at the dive site with these guys, see how they're, see how they're coordinating activities, see how this works, be a part of it. I want to get better with Trimex. I want to learn more about Trimex. And, and so, you know, Jess sponsored me on the team. He wasn't active with the team at the time, but he introduced me to the, uh, the training coordinator at the time, Scott Landon. And Scott graciously sponsored me onto the, onto the team. And I started learning from them. And my involvement with it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't really long. Uh, they, you know, there was another project springing up around the same time. There's actually a couple other projects that were springing up around the same time, uh, back closer to home that I was getting involved with, uh, focused on those, uh, also somewhere in there, Wakulla. One of the things about Wakulla is that you can get heavy rains and the Viz can get blitzed. And so, you know, after I was on the team for a while and going on some of the dives, yeah, they, Wakulla got blitzed and there was like a, a year or more that anybody even dove in there. So during that period of inactivity there, I, I started to, to focus more on other, other projects that were, that were closer to home. Cool. And, um, no, that's, that's awesome because that's actually, uh, leads right into my next question. Um, which I'm really interested in, um, for a lot of you that don't know, we mentioned it a little bit earlier, but good enough, uh, Springs exploration project. So if you could, um, enlighten us on that a little bit, that would be absolutely amazing. Um, cause I know it's definitely, um, there is caves here in Texas. If, if y'all didn't know, there's a few caves out here and, um, we're actually gonna, uh, well, Mike will, talk about that hopefully if that's all right <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> a little bit about that but um no i would love to um you know what are the what are the goals do you have a team in place um and and why are you why does it exist like why why do you want to i mean obviously i feel like that's kind of a known question but just kind of enlighten us on that a little bit the good enough springs project okay sure so when I went through that, that training with Pat and got into cave diving, I got hooked in with some guys in, in Houston uh, that you know, met, met through Jess. And, and some of them have been trained by Pat. Some of them have been trained by others. Uh, but I started, started diving with those folks a little bit. And uh, one of the people in that group of Houston cave divers was a, a guy named Robert Laird. He had done some early exploration of Goodenough Spring in, in the bottom of Lake Amistad in Del Rio, Texas. And it had been some time since Robert had dove there that some of the 
some of the Houston guys, uh, Chuck No, Rick Orish, Jonathan Gall, uh, friends of Roberts, uh, they they were kind of getting the idea that they might like to check out this Good Enough Springs thing. So they they approached Robert, uh, see if he would take them out there and and go find this place because they wanted they wanted to dive it. And I was I was lucky enough to to that I got hooked in with these guys and got in, invited to to tag along. And so they went out there uh, before I dove with them. They made a trip, and they were actually able to locate locate the spring and put a marker on it so that we could return to it later. And this was really just about, hey, there's a cave close to home, and we want to see what's there. We're just interested in knowing what's there, going, going and seeing what it's like. And what we found is a very pretty unique uh, cave. It... it you know, it's, it sits in the bottom of the lake. And so when the lake is full, like the entrance to this cave, you're already about 150 feet deep before you can even go in it. Currently, the lake level's down, so it's, it's shallower right now. But it's a, it's a deep dive just to get inside this thing. And then it goes down pretty quick to what we call the fire hydrant tunnel. And it's called the fire hydrant tunnel because the water coming through this tunnel is like a fire hydrant. It's a very extreme flow. It makes it a very, very difficult cave to to explore beyond that beyond that point and i guess long story short about why is we we just wanted to understand the cave we wanted to know the cave and you know we took the challenge uh, there's a there at the end of this fire hydrant tunnel where that flow is there's a a major restriction that requires digging to pass through and we're just wondering what's on the other side of that and we're wondering if anybody could get through that and so we set out to start surveying, you know, good enough, good enough spring. We formed, we formed a team, call it the Good Enough Springs Exploration Project. How did the name come about? It just because the, the name of the spring was was Good Enough Spring, and so we just added exploration project, exploration project to it. I'm not sure where the spring, where the spring got its name, but it, you know, it's just largely about um, exploring the cave, understanding what, what's understanding the cave, and finding out what's there. Cool. Um, and for those of you that don't know, Del Rio is actually on the border of Mexico and Texas, um, pretty pretty far down there. I've been to Del Rio one time, but not at Good Enough Springs. So maybe <laughs> yeah. one day. So, Mike, you've been involved in other expeditions as well as yeah. an expedition diver and an explorer, Flower Gardens, uh, Jacob's Well, a bunch of other ones we've talked about. And yeah. man, I wish we could. <laughs> We, we could probably sit here for the next uh, five hours and go through this stuff. Um, but I wanted to kind of ask uh, a question and, and maybe we can wrap a few questions in this. Um, and maybe we'll wrap up this episode around here and then do a part two, I think would be good. But so for me, uh, we've talked about this a little bit um, and getting to know each other. Uh, but, you know, like for me, one of my goals in diving is to be on an expedition, right? To be an explorer in that. And I, and I realize I'm, I'm not anywhere close to that yet. Right. Um, I, I'm in that mode of, uh, you know, what you don't know, and you know, it's a long way till you'll know it. But one of the questions I have around that, that I've been wanting to ask you, um, for a long time is, uh, for those of us uh, like myself that aspire to be on a team, uh, an exploration team, an expedition team, um, as a diver, um, what do you have advice uh, to give? What challenges, you know, do you face in doing that type of diving? Um, you know, how, how do you, 
how do you go there? I guess is a good question. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good, good questions. And can and, I go? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned, you mentioned the challenges and one, one of the things that's unique about exploration, you know, with technical diving planning is, is a very big thing. And when you're going somewhere that's known, like you, you can, you can predict pretty well what your profile is going to look like. You can put contingency plans in there in case you end up deeper for some reason or stay longer for some reason or, you know, but you have a, you have a baseline, a reliable base, a known, uh, you have a known situation that you can plan around because you have somebody went there before you um, and you've got the benefit of their information and true exploration uh, and the, you know, the, the, big dive that I did with related to this was at good enough Springs when we did eventually make it through that restriction. It took years for it to happen. Uh, but after, after Chuck no made it through there, uh, Chuck and I went back on, on a subsequent season and we, we did what, what the, what the team considers the first big push dive beyond this restriction to 393 feet. And that when we went there, like we didn't know what the cave did. Like, we had a pretty good idea it was going to keep going deep uh, because of the water temperature was warm and the water chemistry. We had a pretty good idea this cave was going to go deep, but we didn't know if it might flatten out for a while and then go deep, or we didn't know if it'd go straight down, or we didn't know if it, you know, if it would just come, it could come back up shallower, like some caves like Jacob's Well does, comes, goes deep quick and then comes back up shallow. We don't know. And so how do you plan your, how do you plan your, your, your deco profile for that? How do you plan your deco gases for that? So it complicates the, the planning. And so you have to, you have to allow for, you know, wider range of, of unknown. So that, that's one of the, you know, challenges faced when you're, when you're doing original exploration in a, in a system. As far as advice to somebody, you know, wanting to get into that, you know, one of the one of the first things that comes to mind is to 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 know know your motives and make sure they're in the make sure in the right place. And in my you know my judgment, the the right place is just really the experience of trying something new and seeing something new without being focused on things like records. Trying to set records has gotten some people in trouble. Trying for records has gotten people killed. And it might everybody has their own ideas. And in my mind, you know, going for the sake of setting a record is a really bad idea. Um, if you're wanting to go to see something that hasn't been seen before, make a new discovery, find out what's there. That was the awesome thing about this dive at Good Enough was literally being able to go somewhere where nobody else had ever been before. And it was awesome. Um, but I could have done that. It could have been five feet beyond where the guy before me had been, or it could have been 500 feet beyond. I don't, I don't know. I don't care what it does. I don't care what I accomplish. I just want to go down there and see. I just want to go see what's there. And I might turn around without doing, you know, anything special, or I might see something new and unique, but follow, follow where nature takes you without being too focused on goals and trying to, you know, impress people or anything like that. Another thing is like building, building a culture of safety. And, and so this is something that starts way before you ever, you know, get there is, you know, there, this is something I've picked up from my career, uh, at a, 
infrastructure firm where we we had a lot of construction and safety was a was a big big deal and there was a lot of research done into safety and they found that beyond beyond just having certain rules and protocols those are important you need to have those you need to follow them but they found that those only get you so far this goes back to the human factors thing that you were mentioning jay uh, they found that when when they had incidents when they looked into those organizations, they found a common denominator in the places that were having safety issues. And those organizations didn't appreciate safety. They didn't have a culture revolving around safety. It was not important to them organizationally. So there's a, you know, there's a relationship there. And I think it's important when diving with exploration teams. This is something that WKPP did very, very well, is they had a culture of safety. They had a certain culture. And you, 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 you wouldn't dive with them if you didn't fit within that culture. And the safety record that organization achieved is astonishing relative to the, the dives that they have done. And, you know, it's, it's incredible. And they did it by building a culture of safety. And, and we had it with the Good Enough Springs Exploration Project. And a lot of our stuff was borrowed from the WKPP. I was not the only diver on that team who had also dove with the WKPP, borrowed a lot of stuff from them, put our own on some things, but we had a, we had a culture of safety on that team and, and have, you know, fortunately haven't had any incidents there. Um, go slow, you know, don't, don't get it, don't get in a rush, uh, build, build things up gradually and you know just choose your friends wisely uh dive with other folks that appreciate that same culture culture of safety dive with them regular it, it really helps uh you know there were i've seen projects where they were ongoing like the wkpp that had access to the woodville cars plane would call other sites over a long period of time and what they were able to do versus if a if a team came up came in on a one-off kind of deal and they assembled a team of it's kind of like a who's who of diving and i don't care I'm just as, this is just mike's opinion of how team diving works and how diving works but i don't i don't care who's in your who's who list i don't care how great they are individually you, you bring them out from different places and bring them together and put them together on a weekend and send them out there to go do something, they're going to be outperformed by a team that, that rehearses together, practices together. You know, you could, you could take an all-star, all-star all football team and put it up against a team that works together and they'll lose, you know? And, and so really, you know, getting to know people that follows the same protocols, have standardization within the team, familiarity within the team. These are all things that I would recommend uh, to, to people that are wanting to get into it. So I should probably stop diving with Daniel. <laughs> all, and everyone should uh, pretty much. Uh, yeah. That's for your culture of safety. <laughs> I do. I, well, I do want to just kind of uh, just, just go back a little bit to good enough. Um, so wh where is that project currently and what um, are some accomplishments that you have about that project? Okay. So that, the, so the accomplishments are, are kind of dated, honestly. Uh, after, after Chuck and I did the 393 foot dive, 
Uh, we, we continued working on the survey uh, of the cave and made preparations to extend, extend the end of the line, uh, explore more passage. And I was actually inactive, you know, at that point, I got a, got a call. I hadn't been diving with the team a lot for personal reasons. I had a, a very, very sick wife. My, my wife, Angie had a rare autoimmune disorder that it's a progressive disease and got to the point where I wasn't able to dive as much as I, I used to, you know, and Chuck called me one day. It's like, you know, basically I, and I, I commend him for this. He was, you know, he wanted to include me on that dive if possible. He's like, you know, if you're going to be back soon, I was like, well, I, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but I, I can't say, you know, you're going to have to go on. I don't want to hold things back and I wouldn't have expected him to, to wait. Uh, but they, he went on to do another dive there during a period where I was inactive and extended the end of that line to with the current lake level at the time uh, was 515 feet deep, which is a national national record in the United States for a, for a cave dive. And it still is the deepest, deepest cave dive in the, in the United States that's, that's been, that's been completed. And so he did that. He did that as a solo dive. He had support divers in the cave, but for that last leg where he extended the line, you know, Chuck did that as a, as a solo diver. So that was a major, major accomplishment. He came back and reported that the cave continues on. And so there's, you know, there was talk about, we're getting at the limits of open circuit scuba. We're getting at the limits of how much gas you can take down there with you. You know, when you, Generally speaking, when we dive, we think of terms of like how many minutes our tanks last. When you start getting down there, you know, even with even with large capacity cylinders, you can start measuring those and the number of breaths that you get out of it. And so you get into this diminishing returns thing where I've got multiple stage bottles that I'm carrying with me and it only lasts me so many breaths. How many of those breaths did I consume? Even if I'm pretty quick and efficient with swapping out my tanks, how many of those breaths did I consume? And just switching over to this tank. And I've got to maintain reserves in it, right? And and so you get to a point where you 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 get the tank on and there's hardly any gas left in it to go any further. What do you do? And and so, you know, there was talk of of you know, if we're gonna extend this, like maybe we're gonna need rebreathers and and, and you know, by the way, there's only so many people qualified to stage tanks down in there. None of us on the team at the time were rebreather divers, uh, because Though, you know, that's a whole nother subject. Uh, it's a tool, very useful tool for some types of dives, but we weren't doing those kinds of dives. But we had to start scratching our head thinking, maybe so now. So the team started winding down uh, at some point along the way. Some of the guys weren't diving as much anymore. They're kind of aging out. And then COVID hit. There was some talk of doing some dye studies for the scientists in the caves in Mexico to see if they're connected. There were a little bit of things going on, but it was kind of winding down when COVID hit. And, and then now all of a sudden it's like no dive trace studies, nothing going on. And during this time frame, you know, my diving is starting to ramp back up significantly. Um, I, you know, I was uh, single, my wife passed away and um, raised my daughter on my own. That, and now she's off to college and joining the dive club at Texas A&M University, and I'm an empty nester uh, with time on my hands now. So I just dove right back in, no pun intended, just dove right back into diving. Was it a back roll? It, it, was, like, it was a front roll. So he was getting back into it. <laughs> he forgot the back roll versus the front roll. 
<laughs> so I, any way I can get in there. But uh, so, yeah, diving with my daughter some and just really getting back into it. And so I, you know, I reached out to Chuck about, you know, getting the, the team kind of rejuvenated. And so that, that's where we're at now is we're, we're, you know, had some had a trip planned late last year, kind of, you know, COVID is kind of getting to a point where we can try to get things going again. Right. Well, then uh, there's a border flare up. I know listeners who are in other parts of the country may have heard about Del Rio. And believe me, there's not many reasons to hear about Del Rio, Texas, <laughs> uh, except apparently when there's a bunch of refugees coming to the border. And, and so, you know, good luck during that time, like good luck finding a hotel in Del Rio. It's still hard even today. So that, that kind of interfered with our plans last year. And so we've been kind of riding out the, the winter. One of the interesting things about good enough spring is that the water is like low to mid eighties, 82, 84 degrees. Usually springs are colder, 72 on the high end, 68, uh, maybe on the low end, some of them even 64 degrees. So the lake water gets down in the 50s in the winter. The spring water is a constant 80, mid-80s, we'll call it. That makes decompression problematic because if, if you are if you're, have exposure protection for the exposure in the cave, you've, you've got not enough in the lake water and vi- vice versa if you've got in lake water – and, and we, we try, try not to dive dry suits there because of the flow. It's really hard swimming into that flow. And, and by the way, you don't swim into it. We use mountain climbing techniques. We have pitons and ropes that you pull yourself on. That's how strong the flow is. Um, can't turn your head to the side. The water blows into your mask. Can't look straight into it because it'll push your purge button. Um, but anyway, so we can't really do much there in the winter uh, because of those temperature, those temperature differentials. So what we've been doing this winter is I've been I've been diving with guys like Rob Steffen, who's dove at dove at good enough before, old dive buddy of mine uh, that I met when I was training with Pat Watson. He trained with Pat also. Uh, Rob used to be in Florida, did a lot of diving in Florida, but he lives in Texas now. And so uh, he and I have been working. We've had an addition to our fleet. We have a new rib, center console rib, and we've been getting that going and getting it outfitted and configured uh, for cave diving at at Amistad. Um, I am, we're looking at possibly, uh, extending the, the line and good enough. I wouldn't say it's a goal because I don't make goals like that, but if the opportunity presents itself for us to find out where the cave goes from there, we will. And so I, you know, I reached out to my old buddy, Jess Armantrout, um, said, Hey, I want to know more about rebreathers. He says, well, I, you know, haven't been active with them much lately. Um, but call my buddy, Ken Sallett, who also was a WKPP diver at one point. He teaches rebreathers. So I've, I've been in touch with Ken, and he put me in touch with a guy that was also in Florida, uh, did a lot of cave diving out there, uh, Jeff Frank. He's like, hey, uh, my buddy Jeff lives near you. Call him. He knows rebreathers. So I've been, I've been talking to Jeff. Jeff's actually done some dives at Good Enough Spring. He did, he did go do collect some water samples. Uh, he was working with some scientists, not part of the Good Enough Springs exploration project, but did do some dives there. Uh, did some testing of his rebreather unit there. Uh, it's a challenge going into that flow with the heavy exertion and the heating of the scrubber. Uh, so he's got some other things he wants to try there. But we're working with him now to bring some rebreather capabilities into the into the team. And we're going to meet up with Chuck 
out there here in, in the coming days or, or weeks to go do a dive down there. Our mooring system that we had in place down there has failed. The surface float is not there. So we need to go figure out what happened with that, get that reestablished. Uh, some of our lines need some attention in there now, those pool lines. Uh, Jeff reported back that some of those are severed. So we need to go in and, and replace some of those lines. And so that's what we're going to do is basically here real soon is go down there, see what kind of shape our infrastructure is in and get that in shape. Uh, we're going to work on some more surveying measurements to get the survey more detailed. And we're going to start looking at, you know, can we get a rebreather through this restriction? Um, that's one of the big questions everybody's asking. Um, and, and do we want to, if we can? Uh, so there's, there's definitely things to be done there. Uh, things are picking up and just really looking forward to getting, you know, re-engaged with the, the project again after I had a, a bit of a bit of a break from it. No, I'm excited. And uh, definitely we will um, keep up to date on what's what's going on with that, because that sounds very exciting. Um, no, that's really cool. Awesome. Well, I think we we should come back for uh, for a part two. What do you think? Maybe you, even you a part four, three. Mike. You all right with that? <laughs> Maybe a part yeah. three and four. <laughs> yeah, three and four. It's part seven. Yeah, I know. How many Star Wars are there? <laughs> uh, yeah, the nine, I think. Um, so yeah, so we want to give a big thank you to Mike for having us here in your home and for sharing with us, you know, today about your expedition and exploration diving. Thank you so much. We, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and we will come back with a part two of this interview and maybe focus more on your philosophy and approaching diving and dive training and, and some of the things that you're, you're, uh, you're involved in there. Um, if you want to get in touch with Mike directly uh, to train with him or pick his brain or um, tell him, you know, that Nick's a liar, that he was born before the internet. Um, you can reach out to him at ctxscuba at gmail.com. That's ctxscuba at gmail.com. Um, and I'm sure Mike will get back to you. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to be part of this growing community, you can join us pretty easily. We make it pretty easy, right? Um, the, the big thing is go to what, Nick? Um, the internet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's uh, the, uh, the interwebs uh, address. You can write to thedivetable.com. Uh, there's a lot of things to do there. Uh, you can join one of our exclusive, all-inclusive dive clubs, uh, become a patron of the show, uh, subscribe to our mailing list, say howdy with a voicemail or, an, or a message, um, and make sure that you subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And then finally, uh, if you if you enjoyed this um, and we would love this, uh, please send Mike's story to a dive buddy, uh, to a dive team, um, to you know your last scuba instructor, whoever uh, you see fit. Um, and if you um, you know want to again reach out to him, make sure that you do that. So, any parting thoughts, Nick or Mike? Um, I just wanted to also mention that uh, check out our Facebook group as well too. Oh, yeah, the uh, the dive table, just the dive table, not group, right? Or is it the dive the, table group? The dive table, I don't yeah. Even know. yeah. It's dive table on Facebook. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's that internet that we keep talking about. <laughs> yeah, if you if you want to if you want a window into Nick's mind, uh, very strange. I recommend it. Very if strange. you don't, I recommend running far, far away. So, thank you. Uh, any parting thoughts, Mike? No, thank, thanks for having me on, guys. I, I, I enjoyed it, 
Uh, hopefully, hopefully there was at least a little bit in there somewhere that somebody's interested in listening oh, to. Definitely. I think I'm going to have to listen to this episode yes, like 17 definitely. times to just even get uh, everything out of it that I wanted to. So uh, thanks out there in Scuba Land for joining us today. And we look forward to having you back on the next episode of The Dive Table. The Dive Table is a production of Fish Dive Surf Incorporated and a member of the Fish Dive Surf Podcast Network. You can find out more at www.fishdivesurf.com.